A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What colour were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. Forgotten Australia is written and produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. It's very early in the morning of Saturday the 19th of November 1960 and Detective Sergeant Brian Doyle of Sydney CIB is in a BOAC jetliner at 35,000 feet. Beside him, double handcuffed, is 34-year-old Stephen John Bradley. This is the man that Detective Sergeant Doyle and his partner, Detective Sergeant Jack Bateman, were sent to Colombo in Sri Lanka to bring back to Australia. Bradley is bound for Sydney, where he'll be charged with the kidnapping and murder of schoolboy Graham Thorne on or around the 7th of July. The abduction and killing of this eight-year-old lad is the most sensational criminal case in recent memory. It'll be called the end of Australian innocence. For the past four months, the Graham Thorne case has never been far from the headlines. Everyone in Australia has been gripped by the intense police investigation that's led to Bradley being taken into custody in Colombo. Even though the suspect has previously denied any involvement in the murder, detectives Doyle and Bateman can rest a little easier because they know they've got their man, that he's not going to get away, and that they're soon to complete their extradition mission. But it's taken five long weeks of legal wrangling, these officers having left Australia back in mid-October. Even so, as far as they've already come, there's still a long way to go if justice is to be done. When they arrive at Sydney's Kingsford Smith Airport, they'll be met by State and Commonwealth Police, who'll provide security as they escort Bradley in a cop car to the CIB. There, he'll be questioned, before being taken to the Court of Petty Sessions to be formally charged and remanded to custody. The inquest into Graham Thorne's murder will start next week, though it's scheduled to be adjourned until mid-December. After that, months down the track, well into 1961, will come the critical criminal trial. But right now, in the dark blur of this long-haul flight, Stephen John Bradley is hopped up on coffee, and he wants to talk. Not just talk, but spill. While the suspect's wide awake, thousands of miles away, Detective Sergeant Brian Doyle's nephew, Peter Doyle, who's about the same age that Graham Thorne will always be, is fast asleep, tucked up in his bed in suburban Sydney. While young Pete knows that his uncle is a famous cop, the boy doesn't know anything more about this drama than any other lad of his tender years. Yet, more than half a century later, Peter Doyle will use his uncle's notes and case files to reconstruct this and other pivotal moments in the Graham Thorne case as part of his book, Suburban Noir. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia Book Club. For this episode, I talked with Peter Doyle about his book, Suburban Noir, which was published last year and chronicles crime in Sydney in the 1950s and 1960s much of it seen through the prism of Brian Doyle's work as a top cop. This includes not only the Graham Thorne saga, but also the extraordinary stakeout that nabbed the Kingsgrove Slasher in 1959. Suburban Noir is a terrific read, with plenty of original crime scene photos and original drawings by Peter. 
During our chat, we've also touched on Peter's quartet of crime novels. Set in mid-century Sydney and starring the larrikin lurk merchant Billy Glasheen, these books were really important in turning me onto Australia's forgotten history. The same is true of Peter's other non-fiction books, City of Shadows and Crooks Like Us, which collect crime scene photos and mugshots from Sydney in the early to mid-20th century, along with incisive and insightful commentary from Peter based on his own research. Peter curated these photos for the marvellous exhibition City of Shadows, which can be seen at the Justice and Police Museum in Sydney. Now, while I interviewed Peter for this episode, I also had help from listeners. So, big thanks to Dan Crichton, Jenny Duke, Luke Goodsell, Harley Gabardi and Stephen Davis, who wrote or recorded questions. Okay, on with the first episode of Forgotten Australia Book Club. All right, Peter, thanks very much for joining the very first episode of Book Club for Forgotten Australia. Pleasure, pleasure to be with you, Michael. Why the title Suburban Noir? Yeah, you know, people have said to me, like, noir, isn't that like femme fatales in slinky satin dresses? Okay, yeah, kind of is. That's one of the noir, you know, signifiers. But it's also like that other sense of film noir where things go bad. They're inevitably, it turns to crap, you know. So it's like a... Is it Robert Mitchum says uh, in Out of the Past when he's at the gambling tables, you can't win, you can't break even, all you can do is lose more slowly, which is the essence of noir to me. You know, when you get into the record, that's sort of what you find. We imagine 1950s Australia as a boring place where nothing much happened, perhaps best personified by Barry Humphreys in his Sandy Stone character. Is suburban noir the antithesis of this? Is this the vision and version of Australia where Sandy's face down in his dressing gown with his head caved in? <laughs> yeah, in a word. <laughs> yeah, forgive me, that, that's spot on, actually. I mean, it's the other side, isn't it? Like, you know, I love Barry Humphrey's Sandy Stone sitting in his dressing gown talking like maybe your most boring uncle did when you were a kid. It's middle class, it's so safe, it's like they're on Valium and it's this strange, a theatre of the absurd, waiting for Godot kind of thing. And yeah, yeah, that's kind of true. From what I remember of suburban life, it's what we've all fled to sort of find rock and roll and inner city living and all the rest of it. But it's not the whole story, of course. It's not the the whole picture. And there is chaos, violence rapaciousness there's disorder and villainy nearby all the time and I guess my impressionistic memory of the 50s when I was a little kid is that there was a general shut downness on discourse on what people said what people talked about so the Sandy Stone thing yeah it buys into a sort of pervasive illusion of the time but it truthfully buys in Suburban noir's another truth of the time, isn't it? It's the dark side of that, from murders, stick-ups, robberies, to the absolute carnage on the roads. That's right. It was a time when sudden, violent death wasn't sort of expunged from life, and there was a kind of thievery, a sort of petty thievery. Um, You know, I can remember people even at the time saying, you know, never leave a... I mean, people talk about leaving the door unlocked, but by the same token... You know, look, those those council workers out in the street, don't let them know what's in the house. They'll come in and, and steal your, your washing machine or your fridge or your television if you have it. So I remember a sense as much of order and stability of sort of everyone's got their eye on you and they're waiting for a chance. They're waiting for a show of weakness and they will thieve, bash, rob you. <laughs> That's as much the reality. So tell us a bit about your jump from suburban kid to taxi driver and guitar player in the 70s and 80s to author, academic, artist and guitar player in the 1990s and beyond. I guess the first part of that is just like hundreds of thousands of people in Australia, you know, sort of fleeing the suburbs. For me, it was, a you know, uh, moving to Glebe from Maroubra, a university student at Sydney University for a little while until I lost interest and wandered away. So that got me into the inner city and that sort of life in the 70s, which um, uh, in many ways was pretty good. You know, nobody wanted to be in the inner city then. People didn't even particularly want to be on the harbour front. 
I mean, the same all over the world. People were deserting the inner cities for the for suburbia. So I did that. But then later on in the 80s, um, after years of music and taxi driving and a general fecklessness, I, I, I did a university degree. As so many people did, the BA in communications at the University of Technology in Sydney. Yeah, and that fired me up with a sort of desire to do something. And eventually that turned into... Um, writing books I, I thought first you know film film would be really good films films hard though because you need huge amounts of money just to do anything whereas you can sit alone and and write and I started writing fiction you know as a sort of part-time task avoidance <laughs> strategy and um, yeah that got published so that first book was get rich quick it was get rich quick and yeah. it was published in which year uh, 96. So that's the story of Lurk Merchant Billy Glasheen. By this stage, it's in the 1950s. Yes. Uh, he's sort of a peripheral, good-hearted, semi-crim in the sort of emergent rock and roll era. Yes. And 1996 is a goodly 10 years before Trove. Yeah. How did you do the research to build that world? The State Library, Mitchell Library, used to bring you out enormous bound volumes of newspapers and you could just thumb through... The first six months of 1955, and oh, it could be the next six months or month or whatever it was. So you're turning the pages on the old newspapers. Well, of course, every single page is just full of things that catch the eye. In a way, I mean, that does happen with the microfiche or the, you know, the, the digitised records. But there is something about turning pages and seeing the layout of the whole page and just... Smelling it and feeling it. Smelling it, it. yeah, yeah. There was a music magazine that lasted right up until my time playing professional music. Its name at the end was Music Maker. Well, that had been around uh, since it was a newsletter for brass bands in the 20s and maybe before, and then it became a kind of trade paper for dance band musicians, and then it became a kind of magazine for Hepcats in the 40s and the cool people who wanted to swing dance and wanted to know where to go and uh, that's a great source Um, so I read every sort of issue of that as well after Get Rich Quick came out one of the one of the people from that time Bill McColl he was he predated Lee Gordon but he was the he was a dance promoter in Sydney the town hall dancers were huge in the early 50s that that's where people met they went to they went to the dance the blokes put on the suit the, the the lasses doled up and there, were, there was work for musicians all over Sydney, all over Australia, every country town. Your town hall would have a Saturday night dance. Um, and McColl organised those, and he organised some early rock and roll venues. Well, actually, about a year after uh, Get Rich Quick came out, I got a call on my phone. I don't know how he got my number and said, oh, uh, uh, is, is that Peter? I mean, yeah, he said, Bill McColl here, Pete. And I went, oh, wow. You know, so I hadn't chased him up, and I'd just fictionalised you know, willy-nilly, really, what I understood had happened, you know, when rock and roll first hit, hit Sydney. And McCall said, yeah, I read your book. Um, uh, terrific work, son, terrific work, mate. He said, I don't know who you were talking to because it was nothing like what you described. <laughs> I've got a question here from a listener. Hi, Peter. You've got a great ear for dialogue and use period-appropriate Australian slang really well. It seems like there was a pretty sustained period of explosive innovation in the vernacular. So, do you have any thoughts as to what the drivers for that were? Thanks, Dan. Fantastic essay about driving cabs in Sydney, by the way. Hey, Dan, thanks, man. Um, it's really hard to know how people spoke, isn't it, back back in the day? And I've wondered about it a lot. And little bits of recordings from, you know, not many Australian ones, but there are audio recordings from you know, the early days of, of sound recording, just to hear to hear the timbre of, of voices back then when sometimes on some commercial music recordings the musicians speak a little bit to introduce the song. I love those things. And there is a sometimes a strange um, alien quality about them. Uh, and I, yeah... I really wonder, and I remember how my grandfather spoke, how my uncle spoke. Now, my grandfather, uh, you know, I'm of an age. My grandfather was born in the 1880s. So he, you know, 1888, I think. Um, so, 
he died in the 70s, and I, but I can hear his voice in my head now. Uh, he never swore, and he spoke in an Australian accent, but with a kind of precision. I don't think he used much slang. My That was on my mother's side. My father and his brothers were sort of like cura- slang curators. They had almost an objective you know, kind of take on it. And they carefully collected slang terms. They would never have been, you know, obscene. They wouldn't have said any of the, you know, explosive words. But rhyming slang, Paddington rhyming slang, they were very keen on. But they were quite precise in their diction as well. Uh, There was nothing British about their speech. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just thinking aloud. It's a really good question. And I mean, I'm interested in that enigma of how people spoke and what everyday speech was like. I mean, the great um, Australian slang by Sidney J. Baker, uh, he just kept adding to that. It started out as, I think, a pamphlet and he kept doing new editions of it and adding glossaries. And he is pretty good. He stands up pretty well. And he's got a, you know, he's got an index at the back where you can just look up the terms um, in alphabetical index. That, to me, actually reading Sidney J. Baker indicates that maybe slang, working people's slang in Australia was pretty colourful, was pretty rich and pretty unique. Some of it uh, was um, just stuff that had died out elsewhere in the English-speaking world in the 1800s but survived here. The police, you know, still were calling people magsmen, which is, you know, it's a pre-Dickens kind of term, but we were still using it in the 20s and 30s, even the 40s, here for confidence tricksters. So, yeah, now it's a very rich area. And um, before sort of audio recording and ethnographic recording, all that the real scholars have is the written record. And, um, and of course, right from the early days, cops started collecting slang half always for the reason the 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 reason they would give was oh this will help us in our um execution of our duties but you could tell they were loving it they were just <laughs> loving the color and the and the theatricality of it now dan's note about your uh, taxi essay led me to read it which is brilliant by the way is that part of a larger work passage no. in, in fact somebody invited me to do it for a audio book thing where they wanted pieces about 10,000 words long which were turned into audio books and little films it was a thing that was going on um, overseas and I was invited to write something for that I've been wanting to write about taxis ever since I'd done it and I was asked to do it on the theme of Sydney and particularly Sydney less obvious uh, slices of life or aspects of life so I went aha I've been, I've been cooking this one up for decades. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so did it come out as an, in an audio format? No, it didn't. It, was, it, it turned out it, they they knocked it back. Um, the people who had asked me to do it, I went, no, that's cool because I knew, I also knew I had a kind of um, other possibility there in that the Sydney Review of Books and the the editorship of um, Katrina Menzies Pike. Who, Terrific, uh, terrific editor. I knew they were running a series on, yeah, travel in cities um, and between cities. So I went, aha, taxis. It's a beautiful piece. I'll put a link into the show notes so people can find it. So you're writing about Billy Glasheen, who's sort of, you know, on the criminal fringes. Do you think that was in any way related to having Detective Brian Doyle as your uncle growing up? Were you always interested in the seedier side, the criminal side of Sydney life? I wish I could say I was. But in fact, when the uncles and my father, you know, they were a family of brothers, they were all inner city people, they were all sporty. Unlike me, they were all sports figures. You know, a couple of the uncles had been worked with bookies, SP bookies, so they knew the milieu backwards. And of course, it just bored me rigid when I was a kid. It wasn't, I wasn't listening. And many is the time I've thought, wow, you should have paid more attention back then. They were giving you gold. And they knew everyone. They knew everything. They knew the dirt on everyone. And they loved talking about it. And when any of the uncles and my father, 
you know, were together. That's what they did. But no, I um, I was blissfully ignorant. I came to the kind of crime fiction through American and English crime fiction. Uh, I reading um, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett in the seventies, and you know Patricia Highsmith and and. And a few of us, just before the Peter Chorus novels came out, went, wow, this is really great. This is great the way old blues records are great or obscure country records, you know, some non-quite-mainstream music, old crime fiction. And there was a lot of it around then. You could buy it. There were second-hand bookshops all over Sydney and there were, there were old paperbacks everywhere uh, and a lot of the golden era crime and PI novels of the 30s and 40s had been reissued in the 50s. They had brilliant covers. You could buy them for almost nothing. And, you know, on TV, Bill Collins was a great aficionado of hard-boiled movies. So we were pretty immersed in that, my friends and I. And one mate of mine said, just imagine if there was a Sydney-based private eye you know, and he had an idea actually. He said, This is what I want to write. A private eye and he and he lives up around Darlinghurst somewhere and he's and he's the only person in Australia with a Robert Johnson seventy eight, you know, the obscure king of the blues. Yeah. And so you know, we were kind of using American models and American templates in our idol sitting around the pub bullshitting to each other <laughs> yeah. really is all it was it wasn't any organized sort of thing and then the peter chorus novels appeared and my friend uh went see it's and it kind of works mm. and we read them and I went, yeah that's interesting he's kind of finding that urban romance in just the streets we knew well and it's seems strange now maybe but even in the 70s and 80s Right into the 90s, our urban streets hadn't really been mythologised the way, you know, say Paris, London, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, other cities in the world where our culture sort of tended to come from. Not at all. Like I can say that when I read your books in the 90s, it it opened my eyes. To me, history was Kennedy Miller teleseries and, you know, Gallipoli and Kokoda and Farlap and that was pretty much it. And then reading about this character intersecting with, you know, rock and roll stars in the late 50s in my city, Sputnik going overhead. It was yeah. like, wow, it, ch- it literally changed my perspective on the city I lived in. I thought it was marvellous. So thank you for that. <laughs> oh, that's great to hear. That's what, that's what a, you know, I wanted to write something that I would like finding myself. Okay, I've got another question for you here. Hi, Michael and Peter. It's Jenny here. Peter, at the beginning of Suburban Noir, you explained that you didn't necessarily choose the big headliner crimes to be included in your book. I was wondering, as you were trawling the newspaper articles, what was it about the article that might have been maybe only a paragraph long that prompted you to dig deeper and then to include it in Suburban Noir? Thank you. I wish I could coherently answer that uh, very good question there was no method or process or algorithm other than if I happened to notice it if I'd photocopied it from the microfilm or you know if I found that bit of paper on the day I was writing and just thought about it a bit if it if it somehow by whatever means pushed itself into my world then that was it, really. Um, writing a book like Suburban Noir, where some sections are quite long, there might be three, four, five, even 10,000 words, other sections are just a couple of hundred words. That came about because sometimes there was very little information to be gleaned or, or not much to be said, really. And I'd write 200 words and I'd go, you know, that pretty much covers it. Uh, a bloke to, you know, to tradies labourers are sharing a flat they're sharing a house somewhere and one of them gets on the other bloke's nerves and he picks up a tomahawk and kills him and he said well I killed him because he annoyed me and uh, he told the inquest and there's not much more to it than that and so there were 200 word vignettes and there were others that just seemed to you know I would write about them just trying out seeing if there was something to be made of it and then if I had an image, I'd put in the image, or if I didn't have the image, 
if I didn't have permission to use the photo I had, I'd do a drawing. And so it just evolved in that let's see what happens kind of way, as a lot of writing projects, you know, do. I've never been that programmatic or systematic in anything I do. I just like seeing what appears. And I suppose I was actually just thinking about it today, earlier this very day, and it's like, you know, the way we understand this stuff is that the the writer researcher goes out looking, but and that's true, you know, you go to an archive or you ask people or you go to a place and the the street and look at look at what's there. But there's also a way of imagining it where it comes to you and just what comes across your path or what 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 ends up before your eyes and might catch your interests. As a follow-up to Jenny's question, did you have to rein yourself in? Were there, were there any points where you're like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go book length on the Kingsgrove Slasher. <laughs> I'm gonna go book length on Graham Thorne. Yeah, no, that's absolutely um, the right question. Of course, when I was working, I go, okay, quick word count on that. Holy hell, you know, we're up to six thousand words. Doyle, you can't keep. You got to keep this tight. You know, so. Yes, it's always tense. I mean, you know, as as Michael, I know you know when you're trying to, you know, public records are immense and court transcripts are immense. Even quick trials produce a lot of documentation. Police files are really huge and there's just so much detail. When you're immersing yourself in that, reading, soaking it up, you go, oh, wow, that's such a great little detail. You know, the the brand of cigarettes she was smoking or the grog they were drinking or the cereal they'd eaten that morning or the make of the car or the make of the tyres. And you got to, at some point, detach from all that or sort of unstick yourself from that sea of honey <laughs> or glue that you're in and go, what? do my readers actually need here? I'm imagining some of my listeners right now going, I wish Michael would do that more often rather than <laughs> taking us into the 17th hour of this story. Now, <laughs> let me just say, though, sometimes people send me manuscripts or I read things pre-edit books, you know, and and in a way I love the eccentric, less tidied up, all the footnotes, all the sidetracks, all the dead ends, all the red herrings narrated. I love that. And it's a precious thing in its way. <laughs> so reading Brian's files and researching his career and cases, what did you come to most admire about your uncle? I guess I'd preface the answer by saying the men of that generation were, in a way, everything they believed is what people of my generation kind of went, you know what? Not so much, guys. You know, like obeying the rules and, you know, so much old school masculinity. And, you know, now they're just appallingly homophobic, although they were just men of their time. Outlooks have changed so much socially. You know, the, 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 the sort of median point is so far away from what they thought. But they really thought it. They had some idea, and, and Brian certainly did, of you know, that life in Australia could be reasonably decent, that migrants could be admitted and incorporated into the social fabric. They pushed back against women's empowerment. They pushed back against gay life in Australia. They thought that was, you know, the the line they really had to hold. Uh, they pushed back against recreational drugs. And in many ways, they were the first of that sort of straighter, older generation to really encounter that stuff because it involved law-breaking, so the cops were involved. So in a way, I sort of was trying to get past just seeing them as stodgy old reactionary figures like Barry Humphrey's characters, like, you know, sort of somebody you'd satirise, sort of old school going, well, well, what did they get right? And there's a kind of, there is a decency, there's... There's a commitment to work, I suppose. There's a, there's a great bravery, uh, particularly in cops. And, you know, and I do come from the generation of sort of, you know, Vietnam moratoriums are my kind of training ground and, and a politics that's, you know, personally, my own view, you know, is opposed to uh, heavy-handed authority and uh, more power to the people. That's my thing. And I could see those 
those cops as the as the sort of the other side of the uh, battleground in a way. But now I, particularly looking at what police do, they are the ones who are going to the flat where the person gassed themselves a month ago. You know, they're dealing with it. You know, we've got lots of stories of police doing it wrongly. We know that. And they have to be aired. That's part of it. But so too, there's plenty of times when they do it right and nobody really noticed. And except them and maybe other cops. So there is, yeah, I don't know, just a dignity of labour thing there that I, I saw in him. And within those constraints of the New South Wales police force in the post-war years, very strict, repressive, uh, riven organisation, that within those constraints, um, some of the cops, and I think Brian Doyle was one of them, but, but a number of them, applied great intellect and human understanding to their jobs. They worked hard to understand what was going on. They worked hard to understand the change they were confronting. And, um, yeah, it's not exactly heroic, but there is something to admire there. Well, the case of the Kingsgrove Slasher, which is you know a show-stopping piece of writing and research and just everything in the book, so congratulations on that. Thank you. That is the sort of police work we've come to associate with major serial killer cases. Now, this is the sort of stuff of Zodiac or the uh, Golden State Killer in particular, done in Australia at least 20 years earlier. An incredibly patient, clever stakeout at great personal cost. I mean, Brian lost two stone. He had five kids at the time. His wife was sick. He barely slept. These guys were staking out a very violent psychopath for months on end, and it paid off. Yeah. Was it surprising to you that that story's not better known? It's not better known because, thankfully, no one died. People were traumatised. But it's such an interesting story. And, and exactly as you say, it, it was um, early instances of things that became commonplace. It said, Brian said about it himself, that it was the first trial in which the trauma of the child victims was taken into account. And... I'm not sure from the transcripts if they actually used the word trauma exactly, but they had psych after psych into the trial. The guy pleaded guilty. As soon as he was stopped, he almost was grateful. But it, but it was ramping up, and it, it was believed he might have killed somebody. You know, he was slashing them very deeply. Women and children, children as young as eight. So there was real brutality in it. Uh, but, yeah, the psychs came in... Um, and they were listened to, and the fact that the kids... And it was sort of noted that months later, some of the kids were absolutely fine who'd been been attacked. People were attacked while they slept in their beds, and others were still cowering in fear. I mean, it's in 1950s Australia, that's, that's a new perception of childhood, in mm. a way, to suddenly think about kids that way, that they might... The things that happened to them, that they might bear those things... They might carry them around with them to their great detriment for years, for mm. ages afterwards. So, yeah, so you can see a whole new understandings emerging there and the kind of community action of Brian palling up with a local historian and a real community builder, actually, the guy, um, uh, Erdley, a local engineer. and Fantastic just in, character. Yeah, interesting mm. guy. And the family... Um, who are all grown up, you know, they're senior citizens now, his kids, they didn't really care about whether it was known or not. They, mm. they weren't dining out on it. It was just like very community-minded people. Um, and what the needs of the community were in this case to, to, you know, to find this person who was working in this very confined area, uh, breaking into houses, um, the needs of the community were paramount and... They were the person in the in the position, um, and he and his, yeah, and as I explained in the book, the, the daughter of the household, the slasher did actually break into their household, and she, she was probably the only person through the whole uh, episode who managed to to whack him and <laughs> send him packing with a hitting him with a slipper. Yeah. Okay, I've got another question for you here. Hi there, Peter. It's Luke with a couple of questions about suburban noir. I was wondering, how did you feel when you first started going through your uncle's files and what surprised you the most? Okay, Luke, uh, what did I feel? You know, actually, I'd love to say I felt, 
you know, like a light was shining on me, but police files, they're hard going. They're really hard going. Um, they, you know, if you can extract from it a story, a tellable story, that's something. But what you get at first is kind of low grade or with a few little nuggets spread thinly through it. And reading a court transcript, reading a police report, reading a forensic report, you know the way cops talk? It's sort of that um, ex exactly the right time of day and what direction they were facing and um, uh, what the weather was and what he or she noticed. That kind of very deliberately dispassionate uh, style of writing and talking. And plus the cops, when they investigate something... They've got to get all the information they can. Now, when they get to court, they're telling a story. So by then, actually, even though it's in a fairly daunting sort of verbal style, there is a thread there. Go back a step and what you get is every dead end that they chased up and every person they spoke to, which in a way, in this sort of like ethnographic way, can be really interesting, but... <laughs> also really boring, like reading a phone book or, you know, reading somebody's shopping list from from 60 years ago. So, yeah, so the answer is at first um, felt discouraged. Um, and I've forgotten what the second part of your question uh, now. Were, were there any surprises? What, yeah. what surprised you the most, I think? Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose there are nuggets all the way. And what, you know, you, you, you're going... My own experience of, of working with... Um, documents, uh, forensic police documents, is that you're pushing through this boring stuff all the time because suddenly there's something that grabs your attention and it might not even be particularly important. I was, uh, you know, not long ago, I was, I was out reading court trial transcripts from the 1950s and then the page opened somewhere else on the way there and you're suddenly reading... Whatever, you know, a robbery that happened in the same year as the case you were looking for. And then suddenly you notice that uh, that a witness says, well, what did you do that night? Oh, I went to so-and-so's place. And, wh and what did you do? Well, we had, you know, four bottles of uh, beer, right? And what, what were you doing? You, you know, playing cards? Oh, we were playing cards. And we were talking about, um, we were talking about Dinah Shaw, who was a pop singer of the 50s. And suddenly I go, right, suddenly that, has come alive for me. I can see three, they're actually knockabouts. These were the, the, the possible thieves who, who robbed this guy. They were talking about Dinah Shaw, what a terrific singer she was. And I don't know, that might not be worth reporting in a story, but that's the bits I love where bits of real life suddenly burst, burst, <laughs> burst out. And it's not like um, an elaborately made up version of the past. This is actually the past. This is the fabric, you know, the real grain and grit of what people did. Um, yeah, that anyway. Sort of, that sort of dissonance launched Quentin Tarantino's career. Three crooks sitting around talking about a pop singer. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, maybe that's what I was... <laughs> I mean, it is the, those are the sort of beautiful details that, that I love that actually bring, a, you know, a story alive, uh, make it more than sort of just dry history. So going through Brian's notebook, though, chronicling the extradition of Stephen Leslie Bradley, Graham Thorne's murderer, that must have been something. Did that make you feel like, you know, I know it's only little scratched notes and receipts and stuff like yeah. that, but did that kind of make you feel like you were there to some extent? I mean, you're seeing this sort of detail that's not going to be reported anywhere else. Yeah. So there was Brian's notebook from when he brought back Stephen Leslie Bradley with the senior cop, Jack Bateman, from Colombo to face trial for the um, kidnap and murder of the schoolboy, Graham Thorne. Yeah, and there in the book is his hastily scrawled shorthand as Bradley allegedly spilled his guts after denying everything. Then suddenly after it, on the, on the plane trip back, from Colombo, BOAC, British Airways flight. He's drinking coffee after coffee after coffee. They were nearly back at Sydney. They'd flown all night with a couple of stopovers and he wanted to talk. And 
they shut him down. The cops shut him down. You were sitting next to Brian, handcuffed uh, to the to the airline seat. He said, "You know this thing. I did it." And Brian, he said, said, "Oh yeah," and <laughs> leaned across to the to the senior cop who was across the aisle and said, "He said he did the thing, and he wants to talk about it." And the senior cop said, "Oh yeah," and. Um, they explain this in great detail later on, and that is when somebody wants to confess and they know he's guilty, it's a way of the guilty party kind of taking control, like everyone's listening. Suddenly they have everyone's attention and there's a little micro power play in it. And the cops knew and Jack Bateman knew, shut him down now, thwart him. It's like something out of a John le Carre novel when George Smiley does exactly the same thing. You know, when he's questioning somebody, he keeps going away, he keeps glancing away from the thing that really matters. Anyway, the cops did this and said, oh, okay, well, we'll be in Sydney soon, so you can tell it then. Frustrated the hell out of, out of, the, um, out of the kidnapper murderer. So when they did get back, uh, and then he apparently said, so who will talk to me when I'm back in Sydney? And Bateman said, oh... He said, would it be you two? And Bateman said, oh, it might be us. Maybe no one. You know, maybe you, nobody will talk to you. So they set him up. <laughs> and when they, when they did get back to Central Police Station, he, it all came pouring out how he'd, he'd set up this kidnapping. He hoped to get £50,000, quite a lot of money. This happened, that happened, that happened. And Brian, sitting to one side, uh, jotted it down, just took it as dictation in his policeman's notebook in shorthand, which he was pretty good at shorthand, and he was an advocate of shorthand and, and typing lessons for cops from a very early early age. Now, that wasn't presented in court. Later on, when his defence said, this is obviously the police have written this. It's written in this sort of like vaudeville New Australian, because the guy was a migrant, and I, I pick up the boy. You know, it was like stage, mm. stage European migrant. And that's true, because because the court transcript of actually what the guy, what the defendant said from the dock, it's in pretty good, pretty good English. Yeah, it's it's articulate. So he didn't talk like a nervous, you mm. know, second language person. So that is the thing that makes it a bit sus. Yeah, but the thing that makes it convincing to me against that, and I'm really not sure, is that. As Brian was writing the shorthand in this little notebook, in pencil, um, the margin sort of drifts. And to me, it just looks like somebody was writing, trying not to draw attention to the fact that he was transcribing what was being said. Which is not something you do if you're fabricating it. If you're fabricating, you'd write it, you know, you wouldn't do that. So I found it a very convincing uh, piece of... Now how that ended up, that must have been submitted uh, in court, although it wasn't read in court. My guess is that when Brian retired in 1979 as an assistant commissioner and a famous cop then, he was a kind of media cop, they gave it to him. You know, there's all sorts of memorabilia was given back to him, carbon copies, you know, greatest hits file sort of thing. (laughs) And, uh, And I think he ended up with his notebook back again and, and there it is. Yeah, it was so it, it requires a bit of teasing out, but it is, it's an amazing little artefact of, of the time and place. I love the you know, pages you devote to his receipts and what they tell you. <laughs> History's often the big picture, the sweeping scenes. What value do you find in the smaller or even the smallest details? What do they tell us about people, places, events? And why are they so often overlooked? Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is you've gone totally to where to to what I'm about and one way of looking at the past and it's the small things and you mentioned the receipts like so when he went over to Colombo to pick up pick up the guy who was being held in custody there and Brian first time out of the country as far as I can tell he's in Colombo and uh, he, the eyes of the world are upon him and the eyes of his colleagues who aren't going to let him get there'll be no free passes on anything like, oh, yeah, he got a trip to Colombo, eh? Like, you know, you know, mm-hmm. he, he was a show pony. He was a show pony. Like, he did like the press. He'd like the press attention. He dressed well. 
He liked being a public figure. Now, he backed it up with real work and real detecting, and he worked very hard at it. So, you know, in my mind, he earned it. But nonetheless, he did. He was very aware of his image and, as we might say, his brand even. So he kept every single receipt and every, every box of chocolates he bought, the jewellery he bought for his wife, the nice linen jacket he had made by a tailor. You know, when he and Jack Bateman went out to, to, to the fights mm-hmm. in Colombo, they went to the box, you know, every, every single breakfast. So, again, it's like suddenly, it's like the Dinah Shaw record we were talking about before, suddenly... It's from that little thing, a whole life in a world can... It's suddenly easy to imagine real people in dealing with real material things and and all we've got are words is our only way back there. But suddenly those words give you an image, a sense of three-dimensionality and colour and texture and smells. And, yeah, I just love I love the real things and the small real things... And sometimes the smaller, the better. All right, I've got another question for you. Hey there, Peter. This is Harley from Melbourne. Okay, so there's so much in Suburban Noir, but my question's about what you wished you knew. Um, What are the gaps and what are the questions you wished you'd been able to ask Brian? Yeah, Harley, that's a good question. I, You know, one of the ways I look at the 50s is to see just the first little pre-echoes the inklings the seeds of things that were to become big so uh, i'd be really interested in uh, you know and drug culture is the thing that you know everybody of a certain age you know whatever pot or so commonplace but back then they were just so impossibly exotic so i'd be really interested in the first glimmerings of of when uh, the drug world. Now, my understanding is before the kind of rockin' 60s and everything, before that time, you know, this is my understanding, drugs were a thing that a particular segment of the underworld, a pretty small one, and itinerant male labourers, you know, people who worked on ships, uh, sailors, maybe itinerant workers, drifters, you know, drugs were kind of restricted to a tiny proportion of that, you know, cohort. So suddenly that came together with, you know, culture people, people who made records and music, entertainers, and, you know, Don Lane, the, you know, the Tonight Show host, got busted for pot in the mid-60s because he sort of knew it from New York and, you know, that sort of hipster culture. So I'm really interested in that moment when the hipsters met the met the sort of underworld, I guess, or elements of the underworld. And, you know, as a, you know, the cops in many ways knew about this before the rest of us did, before it really made it through to kind of mainstream society. So that's interesting. Um, so would you have asked Brian if he ever blazed up a doobie back in the day? <laughs> I know he never blazed up a doobie back in the day. He did smoke, you know, a couple of packets of ciggies. Oh, that's all right. Every single day. You know, he, he, he sort of liked the darts, certainly, and he liked a beer. Um, and maybe, you know, and, and the thing that makes it kind of hard to read um, that stuff is is the... I don't know, the expressions of just the commonplace stupidities of the time and, you know, the contempt for women. Um, And even while they thought they were protecting womanhood against, you know, thugs and rapists and whatnot, the complete dismissing of women from, from any sort of, you know, as you might say, agentic social life, you, you just can't get past it. And the homophobia is, uh, is yeah, well, it really stands out to any modern, modern uh, investigator of that period and that writing and, you know, the records of that time. So maybe I'd want to say to Brian, dude, <laughs> you know. And actually, uh, to his credit, his, his son tells me that in the last couple of years of his life, he completely changed his views on all those things and 
didn't die, you know, an unreconstructed bullfed male of nineteen white male of nineteen fifties Australia that, um, you know, as, as you know, as a, plenty of that generation did, they went, oh, I think we might have had that all wrong. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So in Suburban Noir and in your other books, there's a lot of very dark material. Um, And in Suburban Noir, you write, the cop's job is to dwell at least a little on what happened and how it happened and report that clearly. It struck me that you could be very much describing your own work. And is there a psychic toll in focusing so deeply on what you call the dead-end small timiness of crime and mishap? Yeah, I find... In, in the early stages, there is, it, and it's really hard going. And I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this, just the the bleakness of it, the stupidity, and particularly crime. You know, crime isn't groovy, it's not romantic, it's not even exciting a lot of the time. Yeah, there's just nothing to be redeemed, nothing to be taken out of that situation. But then somehow something happens and you think, well, what can I tell? And maybe later on, You've turned it into a, a story and it's something else. But those early stages, it gets bleak. Like, why am I paying so much attention to these ill-conceived, stupid, destructive, meaningless acts that were never going to... He was never going to get away with it, you know? It's just like human failure, you know? <laughs> But I don't know, it seems that that's part of the gig, is that you've got to look at that and try to do something with it and even just transforming it honestly into a story. Um, I don't it know. We, of, is it an act of remembrance for the victims to some extent? I mean, resurrecting their lives? Yeah, I think it is. And I, I Michael, feel as much an act of remembrance for the perpetrators too, who in nearly every case um, are... Are people with very unlucky lives, you know, hurt people, hurt people, you know, is the cliche, and you find it again and again that the people who do the awful things had awful things done to them. Now, having said that, sometimes you find people do really bad things and the records show that, you know, it was a pretty stable family. The parents were trying hard. They didn't bash the kid. The kid wasn't sexually abused or awful. You know, they had a, they had food on the table, but the kid went to the bad. And actually, they're the good stories. Like in a way, you go, oh yeah, that's the romance of badness, Breaking Bad, <laughs> and I love those stories. But mostly, it's sort of like it's uh, mostly it's tragic. It's tragic from yeah. every perspective. Yeah, yeah. I've got an email question from a listener named Stephen, and it kind of relates to this. He says, I really like the drawings in Suburban Noir. How does drawing a person or a scene help you understand them better? And why did you choose this? Um, you know, I did a, a kind of Q&A with a, with a person um, a couple of months ago. And she's a historian, a professional historian. And she asked me about the drawings. And I sort of gave, started waffling, going, oh, I don't know, kind of like, you, it's weird, man. You get into the sort of zone of doing, doing the art. And she said, she sort of cut across and went, oh, yeah, I used to do life drawing classes. She said, I'm not an artist. But at the end of life, you know, one one session, you sort of love the model. You fall in love with the model. And I went, that's it exactly. It's like, it's not really directed thought or deduction like, or now I really understand what happened. You see there's in, you know... There are footprints leading from the body. It's just some other dreamy, you know, you're drawing. But um, anyway, I can't explain it any more than that. But the drawing, you know, I did base the drawing on actual forensic, uh, the forensic photographs. 
with, with a few liberties taken or framing, but not many. I really loved doing the drawings and I felt somehow when I'd finished a drawing that I'd maybe just in my own whatever feeling way earned the right to talk about that case, like I'd paid some dues. It makes me feel differently about the writing and it maybe it feels like I have a very provisional, very short-term authority. I mean, I, I, I do feel that and lots of people do like... Who am I to wade in here and gob off about this thing? You know, there were, there was pain in here. There was suffering. Things happened to real people. So you can't just wade in too willy-nilly, you know. And particularly, we're talking about living memory here. Sometimes people are alive. Sometimes kids are alive. And, um, and they're adults now. And that's happened with some of the matters in suburban noir where the children and grandchildren of victims and perpetrators of uh, surface. So, I don't know. Have they been in touch? Yeah. Have they been happy? They have. That's good. They have. Uh, And I was very, very gratified to uh, have one person say, um, yeah, you treated him with respect. How do you feel about the seemingly insatiable appetite for true crime in our culture? And when do you think it offers insight into the human condition? And when do you think it's just exploitation? Yeah, it's a really difficult area. And I guess, you know, I don't know, I don't want to claim any sort of virtue in this, but it seems to be about continually asking, why am I doing this? Why am I telling this? Does this help anyone or anything? And I think a lot of the true crime that I just pull away from is when they haven't asked that question of themselves. Why am I doing this? Is it just because there's story there? Well, that's not, that's not enough. I mean, there's got to be a reason for it. And a lot of true crime, it, it sort of comes from people who are bedazzled by the story potentials. And when it comes to the reason for telling it, they're a bit slapdash. And it's like, we're going to finally solve this case. Yeah. But there's a false virtue in it. And it's, you don't need that. And it's like in any bit of writing, in any bit of music, there's, even when it's fiction, there's a way it can be true and there's a way it can be false. And a lot of the true crime I find false, even though it's true. It's true, yeah. Doing the research that became the books Crooks Like Us and City of Shadows... How addictive was going through those boxes and boxes of unlabeled photographs? I'm kind of imagining that it was frustrating, but also the promise of the next one, the next one, the next one. This kind of like dopamine hit. I can almost imagine you as a research <laughs> rat with a bit of cheese that's going to be somewhere. you just got to find it. I feel seen. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly it. And, you know, it was a product a peculiar product of the moment of you know I started looking at those photos in the early 2000s I was in a you know a publicly owned museum run by a very um, uh, professional and thorough um, you know collection bureaucracy but they were very imaginative as well that was the historic houses trust of New South Wales at the time but they kind of said yeah you've got bona fides um, you are an orthodox researcher you are you know we like your writing go for it knock yourself out so I was able to just look and look and look and look and in fact at one point when the photos all those you know the New South Wales Forensic Photography Archive was just in the old Victorian loft of the Justice and Police Museum which was the old Victorian police station up a spiral an iron spiral staircase they gave me the key to the museum for a while. I was on the payroll at the time, so I was, you know, uh, accountable to them. But I could just go in there, turn on the light in the dusty, dark loft and just look on a light box day and night and it was completely addictive and my life is... I've never gotten over it, actually, <laughs> and I miss it to this day. These are magic portals. And so to look at photos taken in 1920s and 30s Sydney on glass plates 
with amazing cameras by, you know, with a technique that's no longer used because of the toxicity of the chemicals, but makes for very, very rich tonalities on the, you know, in the image. Uh, it was a magical experience and um, haunting. I'm still haunted by it. it was, uh, and you try, I guess, to transmit some of that in the finished product uh, to the readers or the museum goers. Uh. In each of the photographs, there's something to the person's expression, their attitude, their bearing, whatever they're doing. There's just something there that you know becomes that, that tells a story. The story you make up because there's often not that much accompanying information about who they really were or what they were thinking. Yeah. Well, with that, particularly those 1920s, the mug shots that were taken in Sydney at that time in that strange informal way in the naturally lit space in the little kind of courtyard at the Central Police Station cells, still there to this day. It's still the same, open to the sky. You know, it's like, yeah, we're going looking, we're delving, we're scratching away. But another way of seeing it is they came looking for us and that uncanny feeling of never lost it with those photos mm. is you feel when there's somebody in the frame looking out through a you know good lens and a good resolution negative uh, photo at us, you really feel they're look, you're being looked at. You feel that the past is sort of somehow they see us. And, and in a way they do. You know, when, when the photo's taken, when your grandparents got married that day, they're looking at the camera... I mean, it is for the future. It's for their memories. It's for their kids. So in a way, that's not all that fanciful, you know. To take a photograph, to take a portrait is, you know, you are sort of launching a time capsule in a way. And, um, and so that it's a reception skill as much as it's a kind of production skill. Mm. Finally, Peter, I'm very excited to announce I've got access to a time machine <laughs> and you can go back to any place in period for a day but only to observe invisibly. So where are you off to? Who do you want to see and why? Can I divide the day into two halves? Of course you can. As the first ever guest <laughs> on the book club, of course you can. Okay, well, aim the, um, the Wayback Machine firstly at Sofala during the gold rush. I'd, I'd love to see that. Now, so what period are we talking uh, about? 1865 or 6, I think it is. Central West New South Wales. Central West New South Wales, a little bit north of Bathurst, uh, lovely countryside. Until they'd found the gold there, was, there was a bit of sheep grazing uh, that the whitefellas had done, and there was Indigenous life there for a long, long time prior to that, of course, and parallel to that. But suddenly, people from all over the world arrived there. You know, there were tens of thousands of people there, you know, I mean, was it Al Swearingen and Deadwood? <laughs> you know, possibly. Oh, possibly. Oh, Tent City. Anyway, I'd love to just see what that was like at night and day. And then I think I'd go back to um, uh, at lunchtime, we'd hop back in the machine and head to Sydney in the last days of the Lang, Jack Lang government. Or my maybe it's just after the sacking of Jack Lang. My man. <laughs> Tell me why. Oh, uh, well, there's so so much... Politically, you know, it's a very vibrant time, uh, you know, with working people's politics and Jack Lang seen as a, you know, friend of the working, working man um, and woman, working people. There's right-wing organisations. There's the... It's a time when Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane are suddenly, there's a sophistication that sort of worked its way down to common people. It's like the dance craze. The dance craze of the post-World War I years in America and Europe had well and truly took, took root in, in Australian cities. So everybody was dancing. Everybody was dressing up to go dancing. You know, your, your, your bricklayer and your plumber and your bank manager were kind of all going to the same places and the ladies were turning out beautifully. Um, so I would have loved... And there were dance bands and there was a kind of an awareness that jazz was this amazing thing happening. There was an awareness that there was something called hillbilly music coming from America, uh, great music. There was an awareness that there was something called blues and they were being 
you know, there, these things were being soaked up locally and uh, and sort of spat out again in, in local form. So I'd love to see some of that as well. Me too. I'll, <laughs> I'll see you back there in May 1932. We'll go to the the, the, the Palais at, uh, at the showground on a Saturday night. There'd be lots to see there. It became the Horden Pavilion in time, but that was a, it was a dance emporium back in the day. Beautiful. Peter, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Cheers. It's been a pleasure. Many thanks to Peter Doyle for taking the time to be our first book club author. I'll be announcing the next book club title very soon, so stay tuned for that. And rest assured, a new Forgotten Australia episode is just around the corner. Until then, as always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting.